Let's pray together. Spirit of God, as you inspired the pages of Scripture, inspire our hearts today with your truth. Grant that our ears may be opened, that our minds might be active, and that our wills will be ready to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I wonder if you would be able to describe to me what is the most extravagant gift that you've ever received from another person. I'm not going to describe for you what that gift was for me, but I will tell you the way it made me feel. It was just a few years ago. And the way I felt upon receiving that gift was seen, heard, Valued, deeply humbled, and full of joy. I wonder if you've had an experience such as that. Ten days mark the time between the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. I wonder if you've ever considered what the connection might be between these two events. Just 10 days. Or maybe you've never even wondered if there even is a connection between these two events. They just happened and they mean completely different things. If we are thinking about the church calendar and reading the pages of Scripture, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, for example, and if we're looking for a connection as we think about Ascension and Pentecost, typically we're going to think about the difference between them as a difference between Christ's absence and then the Spirit's presence, right? Christ's absence on the ascension, the Spirit's presence on Pentecost. After all, Acts 1 tells us that before Jesus ascended, he commanded his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father had been given. And thankfully, it just took 10 days. I mean, Jesus did not tell them how long it would be. Uh, 10 days is rather short when you think about how long it could have been. 10 days after Jesus ascended, In Acts chapter 2, it tells us that the disciples were all gathered in one place on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks in Judaism, when suddenly the Holy Spirit fell upon them and filled them with His power and with His presence. Now, it's certainly the case that the ascension marks Christ's departure from the earth, just as Pentecost marks the coming of the Holy Spirit to it. Jesus had told His disciples in John chapter 16, it's to your advantage that I go away. That I ascend, in other words. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, if I leave you, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But of course, the the ascension is, is, is more than just a notable absence. It's not as if we just celebrate that Jesus is gone. For as we discussed last week, It marks, among other things, the investiture of Christ's authority over all things. It's not that Christ is gone so much as that he's present again over all creation. And so, as it is with Pentecost, it's more than just celebrating a notable presence, as special as that presence is. It's an origin moment for many things. 
We even conceive of it as the birthday for the church. We're not going to sing happy birthday to the church. That's, that's awkward and strange. We won't do that today. But it really is kind of this birthway, birthday for the church. There's one particular connection today that I'd like to draw out between the Ascension and Pentecost. And to do so, we're going to turn to a passage of Scripture which we did not read today. It's not in the lectionary. It might not even be seen so much as fitting for a day like today, although it is. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 10. Because our eyes and ears have not um, heard and seen that today, please do take your Bibles. There are Bibles available in front of you. Uh, just use your arm, reach out, grab it, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a, a phone or an app or something like that, please do. It's important today to see this text. Additionally, there are some technical aspects to this text, and I think you'll find it beneficial to have it in front of you today. Let me read that passage for us again, or for the first time now, and that's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 10. Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, starting in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, quote, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. End quote. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended, namely Christ, is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. You can keep those Bibles open as we'll reference it quite a bit today. Now, this passage is not the only time that Paul references the ascension. He does that often in his letters. Um, but this is a unique passage in that Paul makes an explicit link between the ascension of Jesus Christ and, in fact, the day of Pentecost, although it's only implied in this passage. And essentially what Paul says is this, Christ uses the authority which he receives at his ascension, remember last week, in order to give gifts to the church on the day of Pentecost. Christ uses the authority which he receives at his ascension to give gifts to the church on the day of Pentecost. Now, admittedly, Paul's main focus in Ephesians isn't actually to develop a theology of the Ascension or a theology of Pentecost, in some ways as I'm doing today. Instead, Paul's primary focus in this letter, and particularly at this moment in the letter, is to focus on one thing, unity. Unity. He says, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, Oneness is what God is about. But even as Paul emphasizes the necessity of unity in the church here in this passage, he finds it natural, natural, to describe how both the Ascension and Pentecost achieve this purpose. Oneness. In fact, whenever Paul mentions the Ascension, every time, he emphasizes how Christ's authority encompasses all things in such a way that it brings everything to wholeness and to oneness. That's the end goal. That's where we're headed, at least. 
And almost in every instance where Paul mentions Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit, he does the same thing. He emphasizes that the wholeness and oneness is God's purpose in the Spirit. Now, coming back to this idea that, that Christ uses his Ascension Day authority to give, to give Pentecost Day gifts to the church, I want to take a look at how Paul makes use of the Old Testament in this passage. Specifically, he quotes from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is written by King David, and the basic message of this psalm is how the sovereign Lord rules over all things. And there are two ways in which that sovereignty is seen. Number one, it translates into protection for those who are his people, and it translates into punishment for those who are not his people, those who rebel against God. So the sovereign Lord is over all things, which means protection for his people and punishment for those who rebel against him. Now, there are 35 verses in this psalm, so I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. But I would like to give you just a taste of how things sound in this anthem of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish assembly. Listen to how the psalm opens up in verses 1 to 3. God shall arise, and his enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you, Lord, shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Now, you didn't hear those verses in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul quotes later on from, from Psalm 68. And it, the portion of the psalm which Paul uses comes from verses 17 to 18. And I want to just give you the, the, the whole chunk there. It says this, The chariots of God are, are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary of the Lord. You ascended on high, O God, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. These verses are, are just consistent with the overall message of that psalm. It says, God is the sovereign Lord of all creation. Your chariots are thousands upon thousands, 10,000. God's the sovereign Lord of all. David says that Mount Sinai, the place where the temple is, marks the throne room of God, at least its manifestation here on earth. And to that throne, David says that the Lord has ascended literally up the mountain in triumph. And on his way, as if from war, returning from war to the throne, he takes enemies captive in a procession of defeat, and he receives from his people the homage that he's due. Can you picture this? A general returning from war, ascending on high, receiving gifts from his people, and leading his enemies captive. As Paul writes this epistle to the Ephesians more than 30 years after Jesus' ascension, 30 years, he, come, he has come to realize somewhere in between that time, the Damascus Road and now, aha, this psalm, it's about Christ. You see, Christ is the sovereign Lord. You see, heaven marks the throne of his temple. You see, and, and to that throne, Jesus has ascended in triumph 
after the resurrection where he did battle with his enemies. And on his way, as he ascended up, he took his enemies captive. Namely, he took captive sin and death and evil, and they are now themselves captive, even as they made us captive. And from his redeemed people, Jesus now receives glory and honor for his mighty acts. Paul says Psalm 68 is about him. And Psalm 68, Paul says, applies to the ascension explicitly. Except you you might have noticed that, that Paul reinterprets one key part of Psalm 68 as he writes and quotes in verse 8 of our passage from Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Therefore, it says, it as in Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Did you catch the difference? Which one is it? Did Psalm 68 say that the Lord received gifts from men? Because in, in my Old Testament, it says he received gifts from men. And yet here in my New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul claims to quote from Psalm 68 and then changed it to say, the Lord gave gifts to men. One thing that's important to understand about how the apostles, not just Paul, but but pretty much all of them, how they uh, refer to the Old Testament, which was their Bible at the time, is that their main concern isn't to quote from Scripture with perfect precision. Now, to our ears, that sounds like a problem. It was not a problem for them. It was not a problem for Jewish rabbis before them. Instead, their main concern was to quote from the Old Testament in such a way that they showed the true and ultimate meaning of the text. We might consider them to be flippant, or or maybe they just changed things to mean whatever they wanted. If any of you were to do that now, I would say, foul. (laughs) You may not do that. That's called eisegesis. It's reading your own ideas into the text. The apostles are not doing this. Instead, they are quoting from the Old Testament to show what was really meant. And so, as Paul quotes from Psalm 68, and he understands that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, aha, this is about Jesus. He says, when he ascended on high, Jesus, and led a host of captives, sin, evil, and death, he then gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men, mankind, humanity. Why does Paul find it so important to declare to us that the true and ultimate meaning of Psalm 68, verse 18, as it refers to Jesus, is not that he received gifts from men, but that he gave gifts to men. Why make the change? I think there are two main reasons Paul does this. Here's the first. Paul understands that the glorious mystery of the gospel is not first and foremost about what God has received from us. It is about what God has given to us. That's the good news. It doesn't say in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he received. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
The good news is, is not that God actually does receive glory and honor, which he does, which Jesus does now. That's not the good news, though. The good news is that God gave himself when he had no reason to do so except his own steadfast love. You see, Paul understands that the true character and purposes of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ are about what God gives for our sake and not about what God rightfully receives for himself, and he does. The second reason Paul reinterprets Psalm 68 is that he's building upon this connection between the Ascension and Pentecost. See, Paul is thinking in terms of the narrative of his people. The Bible is a story, first and foremost. And Paul himself finds, it, Paul finds himself in that story, and he's thinking about what has happened in the story. And that's how we are to think of the text as well. Paul remembers the ascended Lord, Jesus Christ, used the authority which he now has at the right hand of God to then give gifts to the church through his Holy Spirit. This too is, is actually part of the good news. Pentecost is not just an add-on to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It is a part and parcel of it. It's to this that we turn our focus for the minutes that remain today. Listen to what author Mike Cosper writes. He says, A gift's value is in the way it makes and reaffirms bonds between people. In other words, it's an expression of relationship. This isn't to say that the cost of a gift doesn't matter, but it certainly isn't the most important thing about the gift. When I give you a gift, I'm not just giving you a gift. I am giving you something of myself. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What gifts are we talking about? What gifts and, and what really is given? To better answer those questions, I want to remind us of the close relationship that exists between the word grace and the word gift. You might not know that they're closely related. The Greek makes this relationship obvious. The Greek word for grace is charis. And the Greek word for gift, although there are many, as we'll see in just a moment, is the word charisma. Charis and charisma. It's hard to separate these two words from one another. Charis is undeserved favor. It's grace. And grace is a gift. Right? Charisma is a gift which amounts to undeserved favor. Grace and, and gift go together. Both of these things, grace and gift, find their source in God. There's no other source for grace and gifts except the Godhead. God is the grace giver, and he is also the gift giver. All right, we're about halfway through. Are you still with me? All right? You need a breather? We're not going to make you stand up. We're not that good of Anglicans, right? We don't stand up halfway through the sermon. Maybe we should. I'll, I'll commit this to prayer um, this next week. Okay. Um, as it turns out, there are many words for gift in the New Testament. It's not just charisma, but the word charisma shows the connection to the word charis. Now, as an example of the many New Testament words for gift, um, 
Even as Paul ties grace and gift together in our passage in Ephesians chapter 4, which he does in verse 7, which he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He says that. We just kind of passed over it, but Paul's making the connection right there in our passage. And yet, even as he does that, he makes the appropriate connection between grace and gift. He actually uses a different New Testament word for gift. It's not charisma there. Now, the fact that there are many words to describe the things that God gives does make sense because indeed the things that God gives are manifold, right? Greek is really helpful in a lot of ways. There are four, four, at least four words for love and they mean different things. And wouldn't we be, uh, wouldn't we be benefited if we had different words for love in our language? There are different words for gifts in Greek as well. While I won't get as technical as it would, I would need to do in order to identify and define the various words for gift that we see, it would be helpful to at least describe some of the various categories of God's gift to us. First of all, the way that the scriptures talk about gift is that the most basic and foundational gift that God gives is himself. Himself. This is as we just heard moments ago in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave himself. All of God's gracious gifts are derived from this self-giving love of God. The God who empties himself for others. Now, second of all, the, the essential result of Christ's gift of himself is that we can receive also the gift of eternal life. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now thirdly, and this is really important, especially in times where you're annoyed with people in the church, people, our fellow believers are treated in Scripture as gifts from God. In fact, if we just follow the logic of Paul's argument here in Ephesians chapter 4, we would be led to verse 11, which we did not read today, but which says, And Christ gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers all for the body of Christ. People are gifts. As a fourth example... In fact, to be a minister of the gospel is considered a gift. It's a good thing because, especially for the apostles, it came with um, a lot of hardship. It better be a gift in some way. Paul reflects on this in Ephesians chapter 3, just a chapter before. And he says, to me, to be an apostle, this grace was given. To me, this grace was given to preach the Gentile, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a gift, Paul says. Fifthly, in case we think of, of gift-giving as just for leaders in the church, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the shepherds, the evangelists, the New Testament treats every person's station in life as a gift. For example, 1 Corinthians 7 says, in the context of marriage and singleness, Although this, although this applies to all of our vocations, Paul writes, but each one has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. You might not feel like it's a gift to be married. <laughs> you might not feel like it's a gift to be single and celibate. God says it is. 
Sixthly, we're, we're taught that God gives spiritual gifts to each and every Christian. And maybe as we are on the day of Pentecost, we just assume that this will be a sermon about spiritual gifts. It's not. And yet they are a part of what God gives. Most notably, as 1 Corinthians 12 explains, as we heard read, now there are a variety of gifts. And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. More gifts. And last of all, just to cover all of our bases, the New Testament teaches that every good is a gift from God. James says in chapter 1, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Nothing's outside of the gracious gift-giving that God is about. So, all that to say, when the ascended Christ gives gifts to men, which gifts? All the above, right? That one, and that one, and that one. Yes to each and every one of those. The message of Pentecost is more of the same, and that is that God is a generous and magnanimous giver of gifts. And that's a truth at the center of God's character and the center of his actions toward humanity. All of them. All of them. But at this point, it might be now apparent to you that I've neglected to specify one gift in particular. Considering the passage that we've read from Paul in Ephesians 4, considering that he ties the ascension of Christ to the day of Pentecost, and considering that today is that day, Pentecost, perhaps now that gift is obvious to you. Not long after the sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the house and the tongues of fire rested over their heads, the apostle Peter went out into the streets and preached to the crowds in Jerusalem saying this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is chief among God's gifts. Remember, the greatest gift that God gives is Himself. It's Himself. And in our gospel passage from John 14, which was read, Jesus had told His disciples to expect this gift, to expect God to give more of Himself. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. When the ascended Christ, at the right hand of the Father, poured out His Spirit upon His apostles and disciples there in Jerusalem on Pentecost, He offered a gift that had never been offered before, at least not like this. God gave the gift of His personal presence. God gave the gift of His comforting peace. God gave the gift of His sanctifying power. He gave the gift of a new era in the history of the world as the church was born. He gave the gift of a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells uninhibited with his people because he is in them and they are in him. So the coming of God's spirit on Pentecost is an unprecedented feast day. And it is that, worthy to be celebrated and remembered and leaned into every year that the church has. But in another sense, Pentecost is just more of the same. 
It's just more of the same. It's what we should come to expect. God keeps giving himself to us in extravagantly new ways. God just keeps giving himself to us in extravagantly new ways. Have you received him? Have you received him? God's gift of the Spirit, it it didn't just happen on a day 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, halfway across the world. It wasn't just a one and done. God's Spirit has been filling up his people every day since, whether those who are receiving him for the first time or those who have received a fresh filling for the hundredth time. So it's not even just a one and done for you. So have you received him? Do you need more of the Spirit of God in your life? And don't say no. Because it wouldn't be true. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus has told his followers well in advance what to expect. He says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a scorpion or a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's for us Phoenicians. If you then, who are evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, by asking and seeking and knocking, Jesus is, of course, describing prayer. He's urging His disciples to lean into the life of prayer, which I know all of us neglect. But even more fundamentally than that, Jesus is describing, by asking, seeking, and knocking, what faith looks like. What faith looks like. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who exercise their faith in Him? Scottish pastor and theologian George MacDonald, he writes this, For the real good of every gift, it is essential First, that the giver be in the gift, as God always is, for he is love. And next, that the receiver know and receive the giver in the gift. Every gift of God is but a harbinger of his greatest and only sufficing gift, that of himself. No gift unrecognized as coming from God is at its own best. Therefore, many things that God would gladly give us must wait until we ask for them, that we may know from whence they come. When in all gifts we find God, then in Him we shall find all things. Wow. So are you finding Him?
Are you recognizing him? Are you receiving him? I think this is one of the most challenging things about all of this. Whether it's what Paul is writing in in Ephesians chapter 4, how he's using Psalm 68, how we understand the significance of Ascension and, and Pentecost, how we understand that God is the giver. I think one of the most challenging things about all of this is that we have to be receptive to the things that God is giving. We must be open to God's Spirit if we are to be filled by Him. Did you know that being an open container is a good thing? Don't tell the police I said that. We must be open if we are to be filled. It is a principle of reality, just like it is that the body needs water, that we need what God has to give. And yet, we have to drink. We have to drink. I doubt that that anyone has poured water into your mouth while they forced it open for you. We drink to survive. And so will you drink of what the Lord has to give? As you read the, the story of Scripture, as you see how God's redemption has begun, how it's built, how it's ongoing now, and how it will be completed. What is clear to me, and I think it's clear to you as well, is that you can never over-receive what God is giving. It can't be done, but you can under-receive. You can surely under-receive. This morning, as we embrace a few moments of silence, in just a minute, as we pray together, as we continue on in the liturgy of the people and as we come to the table of Christ to receive with hands open like this, the invitation to you this morning is simple. It is to humbly receive what you did not earn and what you cannot buy. It is to faithfully accept the grace which God gives to you out of his own steadfast love. And it is to open yourself up. To open yourself up in a fresh way to the God who is both the giver and the gift. Amen?